like my mother, I always cared about my work to the nth degree. I was the hardest working person, uh, no matter what setting. That's what I set out to do. And if I had a meeting, I was the person who read up on everything before the meeting. It just always seemed to me, given the education I received, I had somewhat an obligation to do the best that I could do, uh, particularly because I came to believe so strongly in the importance of education. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Ruth Simmons. Ruth serves as president of Prairie View A&M University, a position that she's held since 2017. Previously, she was president of Brown University. A French professor before entering university administration, Ruth held an appointment as a professor of comparative literature and African-American studies at Brown. After completing her PhD in Romance Languages and Literatures at Harvard, she served in various faculty and administrative roles at the University of Southern California, Princeton University, and Spelman College before becoming president of Smith College, the largest women's college in the United States. At Smith, she launched a number of important academic initiatives, including an engineering program, the first at an American women's college. Ruth, welcome to the podcast. You've had a stellar career in higher education, leading a top women's college, Ivy League University, and now a leading historically black university. I've also had an opportunity to learn some important lessons from you when you served on the Goldman Sachs board. So I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. Thank you. Great. Well, so let's start at the beginning. You were born and raised in Texas during Jim Crow segregation at a time when there were many structural barriers for a young Black girl to get ahead in life. Help our listeners understand what that was like, what were some of the obstacles you faced early in life, and how did you overcome them? What role did your parents play? Were there other mentors? Well, um, I think I I was uh, born the youngest of 12 children to parents who were sharecroppers in East Texas. But I would say that I was too young at the time we were on that farm to understand the uh, constraints uh, and the problems that my parents and my older siblings were aware of. And so for me, my first five or six years, I was just uh, happy to be with my family. I was the youngest, so I got a lot of attention and I didn't have to do any work. But the fact is the older siblings and my parents had backbreaking work in the fields. And since that was the priority in sharecropping, my siblings couldn't go to school every day. And so they missed out on getting an education really because of the field work that they had to do. I was fortunate enough that my family moved to Houston when I was seven years old. And then I was able to go to school every day. And that made a huge difference in in my life. The fact that education was a normal activity by the time I was seven years old made, honestly, all the difference in the world. And But still, while we were desperately poor, moving to the city was no um, cakewalk, really, because we brought our poverty with us into the city. 
as you might imagine, living in very bare circumstances. My father worked as a janitor, my mother as a maid, and they took care of us. We were able to go to school, we were able to eat, we had a house to live in. And so, although we had the bare necessities, we had a kind of normalcy, I would say, that many families would, would recognize. And what was important about that normalcy was that I had parents who cared a lot about family, about how we held together as a unit, about how we supported each other. And they were very strict parents, overly strict, of course. But what that meant is that my mother was constantly teaching us what we should and should not do, um, whom we should be in our lives, and what we should aspire to do. Now, this was very important, Hank, because as you know, a misstep during that period could cause serious problems for a family. And we have history to tell us uh, about the young people who were killed or otherwise had terrible effects from that. So we knew what not to say. We knew how not to deal with rights. And all of these rules were given to us on a daily basis by our parents because their job, they thought, was to enable us to live to adulthood. And they did that. None of my siblings really had any harm come to them because we didn't know how to interact with whites. And so, so my greatest mentor it was really my mother because she had a menial job, but in watching her perform her job, I learned something very important. And that was the dignity of work. This menial work that she did, it didn't seem to matter to her because she would take so much care with her work, whether she was ironing or mopping or, 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 or cleaning anything. She was very attentive to the quality of what she did. And she would also be saying to me, you know, when you do something, you have to do it well. And at, when I was young, I thought, why can't you be angry about being consigned to this kind of work? But as I got older, I came to realize that I was learning something very valuable from her. And that is that whatever circumstances I was dealt in life, I could still be the same human being because it was about my character, it was about what I cared about. That's what she taught me. And I have to say, I still live on those lessons today and that I did. So I got through school. I was able to go to school every day. I was able to graduate from school and go to college. And that, that's really the story of my childhood that I uh, I got to go to school. It's amazing because you got to go to school, but you got all the way to Harvard, right? And so you must have had some very important mentors or teachers along the way, right? I grew up in strict, the strictest segregation. In fact, I didn't interact with any whites until I was probably almost 17, 16 or 17 years old, because, you know, you couldn't go into certain places and you had to stay in your place. And so, so one of the thing, results of that is that the best people from the African-American community had very limited things that they could do. And one of the things they could do is teach. And so we had access to the best teachers who, in a way, were consigned to teaching. So my elementary education, my high school education was filled with wonderful people who took an interest in me, who pushed me, who insisted over sometimes uh, objections in my family that I, I actually could go to college. It was such an unreasonable idea at the time 
uh, but they they thought so. And without their imagination, I probably never would have gone. And so here are some of the things, the kinds of things they did that was so remarkable. You know, I've told the story of how when I got ready to go off to college, we had no money. And so I, I didn't have a way to, you know, go out and shop for clothes and pack a bag and so forth. So one day a teacher um, asked me to come to her house to help her out with some chore. And so I went to her house and of course that was a ruse. What she wanted was for me to go in her closet. When I look today at my college yearbook and see the clothes I'm wearing, it really refreshes my memory about how kind uh, my teachers were to actually give me their own clothes. It was remarkable, frankly. They sent me money when I was in college. Um, and they came to my, um, you know, my graduation. And they, when I was inaugurated at, uh, at Smith and at Brown, they came to my inauguration. You know, I can hardly imagine what it was like. So you went on and you got your PhD from Harvard studying romance literature. The question is for you, why literature? What, what, what drew you to literature? My childhood was all about constraints and all about race and all about staying in, in my sphere. I couldn't go outside of my community. I couldn't get to know people who were different. And so the only outlet I had was to read, read books. Um, and read about the lives of people, very different for me. Uh, because I knew there was something fundamentally wrong with the kind of um, segregation that we operated within in this country. And I thought that I wanted more for myself than that. I, I wanted to know about different cultures. I wanted to know about different histories. So I started reading when I was very young. I had a mission to read every book in the library. <laughs> and so, and it opened up my imagination. So when I went off to college and started studying language, it occurred to me that, well, I mean, one way to ensure that I would never be locked into the same kind of environment again was by learning language. I could travel and I could learn about different cultures. When I was uh, 17 years old, I decided, well, I've got to get out of the country and see for myself whether every place, every place in the world is, is like um, what I've experienced. And so I got on a Greyhound bus and went to Mexico to live with the Mexican family and to study Spanish. But from the earliest time, that's what I wanted to do. And I got a Fulbright when I uh, completed undergraduate education and, and was, uh, had a chance to spend a year studying in France. Um, and from there, it seemed logical to continue with language and literature studies. And so I went to Harvard and got a PhD in, in Romance Languages and Literatures. I took a lot of math and physics and economics, but I majored in English literature. I'm not even bilingual. But I tell you, I love to hire English majors because I do think you learn a lot from reading and reading literature and, and it just exposes you. So then you made a big transition. So the transition to university leadership and management. So starting with the different administrative positions and then having that evolve to the top positions. But talk about that transition and what led you to, to go on that route. In talking about my childhood, I omitted an important uh, fact, and that is how, how difficult I was. 
um, at, you know, being the youngest and having everybody be more powerful than you. I had to learn early on um, to be a, you know, problem solver. I was quite presumptuous uh, early on. I went into my first um, job uh, explaining to people that they were doing things all wrong. Uh, and so I, I proceeded to try to restructure um, uh, teaching and the curriculum and so forth. And I'm sure it must've been very annoying for people, uh, this very junior person telling the most senior people that you know, everything they had done was wrong and we needed to completely redo things. Um, so what that got me was notice from the administration and they said I should come into administration. Uh, since I like to do that, um, they gave me my first administrative job. I think I was only working two years when I, I became an assistant dean. At that point, uh, it was quite interesting. And I, I stayed in administration for a, a basic reason, really. There were very, very few uh, African-American faculty. And I had no African-American students in my classes. And so I thought, well, it's probably more efficient for me to be in the center. And that way I could mentor more African-American students from across the whole university and not just in my department. And so it seemed practical to stay in administration. I thought that that would be, uh, I have much more impact for the students who were coming along at the time. And so I then just started getting promoted um, from one position to another, although I, I, I didn't become less difficult, I must say. Well, you know, the interesting thing, and you and I will talk later about sort of a theory of education and great admirer of your approach. You came to my attention when you were the president of Smith College, which is the country's largest women's college. And I'd had a grandmother, a mother, a wife, and a sister that had gone to Wellesley, which is another all-women's college. I was familiar with this, and I heard of this person who was becoming legendary all over, just incredibly popular, not just with the students, but with the faculty and with the alumni. So that's when I got to know you. And so I want to know now, how do you balance in a university all these different constituencies and what are your principles of leadership? Well, you know, I, I never had any formal um, leadership or management training. Like my mother, I always cared about my work to the nth degree. Um, I was the hardest working person, uh, no matter what setting. That's what I set out to do. And if I had a meeting, I was the person who read up on everything before the meeting. It just always seemed to me, given the education I had received, I had somewhat an obligation to do the best that I could do, uh, particularly because I came to believe so strongly in the importance of education. Universities represented for me, not just a way out, but a way forward. Uh, I believed in the mission of uh, colleges and universities. Their ability to transform people's lives as my life was being transformed. So first of all, I work hard. And I think the fact that I work hard is pretty evident to people. Also, I care. Um, I care about my students. I care about the faculty. I care about the world. And so uh, I think the evidence um, that I am operating from a place of concern for other people helps immensely. 
What I try to demonstrate is that I believe in shared governance and that I have the capacity to listen to others' views. And more than that, when um, those views are better than mine, I'm willing to step aside and let the best ideas govern. I tell you, there's so much wisdom there. And what struck me about you, Ruth, always was the wisdom and the judgment. And it was an interesting thing because when you look at leaders, it's very hard when, you, when I was working to mentor people working their way up. And if they don't have good judgment, it's very hard to say, you know, you need to work on your judgment because the extreme, the extreme example of bad judgment yeah. is you think you've got good judgment, right? right? And so what hit me about you was just that. You were you tough-minded, cared about people. And I think people, I found that I can make all kinds of mistakes, but if I cared about people and they knew it, they would do everything they could to support, right? Yes. And setting a high standards. I always talked about defining the job expansively, which is what you did, uh, the high standard, and then the authentic leadership. So what really strikes me about you, Ruth, is you've been a leader and a change agent at three very different academic institutions with different student bodies, faculties, and needs. Do you have a guiding philosophy of university education? Are there sort of universal principles, values, skills you seek to, to instill? So you've talked about your leadership principles, which I'm sure are the same wherever you've gone, right? Now, in terms of your philosophy of education, describe that. Are there core principles and philosophies, but you apply them differently in different places? Talk a bit about that. That education aspect of what we do in universities, some people are thrilled by the research that they do, um, but we're preparing young people for the future so that they are fit to continuously improve society. And so, so wherever you are, uh, whether at Smith or, or Brown or um, Prairie View, uh, it's the student that you must focus on. Are we doing what we need to educate them at the most rigorous level to inspire them to commit to lives of purpose to help them understand what it takes as a citizen to be productive. And uh, all of that is the first, the first principle. The second element that I think about is the integrity. We have to be absolutely certain that what we're doing meets that test. Are we committed to accuracy? Are we committed to openness of um, debate? Are we committed to finding uh, our way to, to the truth? When it comes to, to university life, we know that one of the things that makes the difference in the quality of an institution are the educators that we hire. And so my focus is on faculty. Are, are, they, are they good enough? Are they knowledgeable enough? Are they still learning? Are they producing scholarship? Are they cognizant of the, you know, the very edge of their discipline? Do they have high aspirations for their students? And are they demanding of their students? Do you have the right people in place overall in order to be able to deliver on the mission? You know, in universities, we always start with the mission. And that's what anchors us from generation to generation. What was the reason that we were founded? Are we fulfilling uh, the purpose for which we were founded? And are we doing it ably in these times? And so you're constantly retooling to make sure that you are fulfilling that mission in, in the current times. That's very important. 
um, universities are all about preparing young people, as I said, for lives of, of usefulness. And they come to us in all, from all backgrounds and they're not all the same. And, you know, it's not unusual for me to chastise a young person for something that they're doing. I mean, I, I, for me, uh, I see my role as very parental for the undergraduates. Uh, I treat them that way. And um, they, they, they don't admit to being offended by it. But if I get, if they dare send me a text that is unreadable because they're using a lot of jargon and, and um, abbreviations, I give them a lecture about how they ought to learn to communicate with people of all, of all stripes, including older people like me. So uh, that parental role, um, I think, is in loco parentis is, is very real. I treat these young people as if they are in our care. Um, and so I want everybody in the university to be interested in that as well. So that is, to me, so much of the challenge that so many universities have with the tenure system, how to keep upgrading the faculty and offering right. the very best. Now, I want to talk just a bit about the distinctive role that women's colleges play in higher ed. You've seen that. And, you know, I, I thought it was quite remarkable that you launched an engineering program at Smith College. So what led you to do that? Well, I went to, to Smith. And there was a good deal of discussion about purpose. Uh, after all, uh, women had the option of attending co-ed universities um, and uh, the question was, um, how, could, how could women's colleges be relevant? My thought was that every university exists in every era to make sure that they're doing the right thing for that time. Okay. Well, we're, we're a very modern society. More and more women were um, going to college, and many colleges were becoming uh, more than 50% female. Engineering, in a sense, was dying because it was not hospitable to women. So what I wanted, I wanted to do two things. First, I wanted to offer the opportunity to Smith women to understand how exciting a profession uh, engineering could be for them. I wanted to demonstrate how they could fit into uh, engineering. And I wanted to prove to higher education that there were ways to attract women to engineering. So I, I thought of it as a very significant opportunity for Smith, but also an opportunity for us to offer something to society about what women were able to do. That was a very powerful move. I can remember, remember back then. So now <clears throat> let's go to the present because you're the president of Prairie View A&M University, part of the Texas A&M University system and a historically black institution. Talk a bit about the role of historically black colleges and universities and the opportunities and the, the, the challenges you're finding at Prairie View. Uh, we were founded uh, during Reconstruction because um, slaves were freed and now there was a problem. There needed to be people to teach them, people in certain kinds of uh, trades and so forth that were needed for their communities because they couldn't come into white communities. And so they was founded with that separation, founded to be less than because the, the expectation was that African-Americans, Blacks would always be less than. And, and, so, and, and so it's an incredible history because in spite of the way that these institutions were founded, 
um, they outperformed the expectations of the country um, and became something of an engine for preparing the way for all of the civil rights uh, that uh, uh, Blacks eventually won. And if you look at the leadership of those movements uh, and certainly through um, the early days of the, the uh, 20th century, um, these are all people who were educated at African-American institutions. But here's the remarkable thing. All of this was done still in the environment of less than. HBCUs typically have not been supported uh, to the same degree as their comparative equals uh, in, in state systems. We are now playing catch up. Uh, one of the things that attracted me, actually, I was determined to be a retired person when I left Brown. The idea of these young people still striving to get beyond the constraints of the history of race in this country just made me feel that if I had something to give, I had to try to give it because these institutions had been such, had made such valiant efforts uh, in the service of this country and they deserve the best that they could, uh, that they could get. So what, what do they mean today? Well, they educate, they're only 3% of the universities in this country, but they produce 20% of the African-American graduates. And so that's how important they are because many of the families and students who are still pursuing a college education are trying to do so uh, in a safe context in which they do not feel uh, that their culture is frowned upon or denigrated, in which they feel that they are not under stereotype threat and so forth. And so while uh, we would wish that it would not be so, um, we are non nonetheless dealing with the reality of this time. And in this time, uh, students are still saying, I want to be in an environment uh, that will support who I am as a, as, as a person. Now, we are no longer, of course, 100% African-American. Many HBCUs are up to 20 or 30% or uh, non-Black. Um, and so that's, that's a good thing that, um, that we're becoming more diverse. Ruth, that is a really good transition to my next question, because, you know, you've been discussing the issue of race. You've done it very objectively, and you have a very unique perspective on the issues America has been grappling with around social justice, gender, and race. What do you think is missing from today's national conversation? How far have we come in addressing these issues? And what do we need to do to make more progress? What's the right way forward? This is an enormously challenging thing to, to solve. The simple uh, proposition that it is worth it for us to learn about each other. How do we think we'll survive as a country if we don't invest um, uh, ourselves in learning about different people? That, I, it's beyond me to, to figure out why people think that we can actually do that. Uh, not talking at each other, uh, but uh, talking to and learning from each other. You know, I often say that, you know, we're, we're taught all kinds of things as we are uh, growing up, you know, but when do we learn how to interact with someone who is vastly different from us? Uh, what, are, what are the techniques that we could use to make sure that we are not offending others while holding on to our beliefs and our culture? We never learned that, really. 
and uh, you may be blessed to be part of a religion or of a family that helps you to understand that. But what if you're not? What if you grew up, grow up the way that I grew up in a completely segregated sphere and you never get to see anybody different from you and all you hear is how bad people are and how ugly they are and how stupid they are? I think that, that we should expect our civic uh, institutions to do much more work bringing people together. And that means that we should be more intolerant of political discourse that is uh, dividing the country. If we are intolerant of that, it will stop. And so I think for the public to take a stronger stand on making sure that we engage in civil behavior and civil discourse to save our country, uh, that to me is uh, the most important thing. And that's why I believe that I, I always insist that students try to do some of what I did as a child. My students have always asked me, why am I not angry? The thing is, anger gets you nowhere. And if you have been in an environment where people have behaved so badly, your first obligation is not to do the same thing yourself. So I rather think that uh, if we tone down the discourse, uh, if we made it clear that we are open to people um, expressing their views, if the conversations were not so high stake, then I think we could, we could manage much better. We're just not trying, in my view, we're not trying hard enough as a society to create the structures that will enable this. And other countries do that, by the way. We're not doing it as well as some other countries that have shown that uh, they are amazingly attuned to the fact that it's difficult for people to come together from radically different backgrounds without having some kind of structure that enables them to get along peacefully. I think the issue you raise is an issue that goes far beyond race, polarization. When you talk about institutions, I, I think about universal service. You know, there's the military. Right now, as we've gotten away from the draft, we don't have the same, you know, when I say fully integrated, I don't mean integrated in terms of blacks and whites and race. I mean integrated in terms of people from all backgrounds, all geographies, working together and getting to know each other, right? I'm hoping that necessity will be the mother of progress because our country is not going to survive. Our political system isn't going to survive. And I think it starts with leadership at the top. Now, for instance, you can do that. And we can't be divided by parties, right? Or ideologies. We can have different views, but we need to listen. And someone's got to lean to the other side. And, and listen and compromise. Now, I want to get you quickly on crisis management, because I can sure remember when your advice was very helpful to me as CEO of Goldman Sachs. And what, what I remember was 9-11, people in the New York office being just a few blocks away from that horrific scene at the World Trade Center and traumatized beyond belief. And you were explaining to me, you've got to be patient, talk to them regularly, but you can't, can't overdo it. You can't order them back. You've run a big institution during COVID, kept it, you know, need to keep it open, keep people safe, keep it open, go on, continue educating. I, I have no doubt your excellent communication skills have helped, but what lessons, it just anything quickly, we've talked about leadership, but anything stands out to you about leadership during a crisis? 
One of the things I've said to my senior team pretty often during this period of time is that as, as leaders, you should be prepared for very different kinds of shocks. And honestly, Hank, during this period, I thought 2008 and then the World Trade Center and all of that, I thought those were horrific and I had to lead Brown through all of those periods. And I thought that was the worst that could, there could probably be. But I've actually found this period to be much more difficult and much more complex because as soon as you think you have one thing in hand, first the George Floyd incident, and then you know the, the country is coming apart and you're trying to keep students calm and give them some hope. And then, then suddenly you have historic flooding that wipes out um, many of their families uh, because of climate change uh, here in, you know, here in Houston. And then right after that, you have COVID and then they're losing family members and they've lost their environment on campus and they have to switch very suddenly to online learning. Uh, and then, and so what we experience then is it's no more just prepare for the periodic crisis. It's just be prepared because they could be concatenating uh, crises where you think that you're in one and then that's being magnified or changed by the fact that something else has come along that makes it far more difficult. And so in the middle of uh, COVID, you've got a budget crisis because obviously as a state institution and the revenue shortfalls and so forth, you're dealing with uh, budget issues. So I think that, you know, people uh, talk about equanimity. Here's one thing that I know from all of this is that you cannot have people lose sight of the fact that whatever is going on, it's going to come to an end at some point. And so what it, even as you're dealing with a crisis in all of its parts, you have to also at the same time be dealing with how with recovery. What is it going to look like? Um, how can you be better prepared for it? So to me, price, leadership in, in, in crises uh, is all about equanimity, handling the crisis in the best way possible, but almost more importantly, being ready for how you're going to help people recover. And from a leadership standpoint, obviously people tend to panic in crises. And um, the thing that I've always tried to do is when people are in pain to show that I'm suffering too. When people are afraid to show that I'm afraid too. When people are experiencing anything that is troubling, not to pretend that is not happening or that they are wrong to be afraid, uh, but to show again your own humanity in the context of what they are experiencing and then give them a sense that you're going through it together. So I think um, uh, partly what happens uh, when it enables you to get through that uh, crisis is that sense of you know the fact that you're in it together and that you're trying to find a way to weather it in the best possible way and to come out of it stronger uh, on the other end. And so you're constantly saying to people, here's what we're going to do when we come out of it. So some of the best days we've had actually as an institution have happened during this period of crisis. 
We had our research classification elevated during coming out of this crisis. We got all of our accreditations done with flying colors uh, during this crisis. We got a record fundraising during this crisis. So I think part of the reason that all of that happened is that crises can make you work up to even greater potential than you thought you had because you, uh, you get better in the course of a crisis to deal with some of the, the, the problem. So I think we're in, in a, a, certainly I would say we're in our absolute strongest position probably historically right now as an institution. And that's coming out of horrible series of crises. I tell you, that's right. That's a great seminar on crisis leadership. And I've got a last question for you because you spend your life with young people. So what career advice do you give young people today with all the changes, all the complexity, all the challenges? What's the best advice you give them today? Um, it's quite, quite simple. Uh, and that is, I, I say your, your, your number one job is to learn and to keep on learning. I mean, so many young people believe that they've already, uh, they've figured it out. And so I urge them not to do that, to be open to the possibilities of learning for the rest of their lives, really. It's interesting because you and I had very different career paths, but I give the same advice. I, I, I say, first of all, I'm suspicious of career engineers. Everybody wants to plan it out, right? Be open and then you can afford anything early on and throughout your career other than to not learn. And that's the most important thing. So, Ruth, this has been absolutely terrific today. You know, it's interesting because when I think of you, I've thought of equanimity and empathy and wisdom and judgment. Those are as if you'd asked me before we had this conversation and what I thought of you. And I tell you, you've, you've given a really good seminar on those qualities and you've, you've, you've shared those qualities in abundance with our listeners. And I thank you very much. Thank you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.